I will be forever the method. You're the king of kings, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. The little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon sponsor for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, just go to our official website, bodybuildinglegendshow.com, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the link to becoming a Patreon sponsor. All right, welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding, and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen. And on today's show, we're going to have our second part of our sixth anniversary special. So last week, we had part one of our sixth anniversary. We are celebrating six years of the Bodybuilding Legend podcast, which started July 2nd, 2017. So we have been doing this now for six years. So every year at the date of our anniversary, I do a couple of shows where we go back into the archives and I pull out some of my favorite interviews, some clips of my favorite interviews. Some of them are old, some of them are new. I try to get some new ones that we just did in the last year, and then I go back and get some old ones as well. So we've got some clips here today that we've never played on our anniversary specials. Some included in those clips will be a clip with Rich Gaspari, an interview I did with Rich last year which was 2022, where Rich talks about turning pro in the 1980s. Of course, now they give a lot of pro cards out at a lot of these national-level competitions. But when Rich was competing, I think there was only like four people a year that turned pro. And in order to turn pro, you had to win your class at the MPC Nationals, and then you had to go to the Mr. Universe, and you had to win your class there. If you won your class at the Nationals and didn't win the Universe, you had to go back to the Nationals the next year. So it was very, very tough. So Rich got his pro card at 21 years old, which was really amazing. So Rich and I are going to talk about that and uh, this first clip of our anniversary show. And then I've got another clip with Rick Wayne, one of my favorite interviews that we've done on the podcast since it started. So this was actually from part two of my interview with Rick. So we're going to play that as well on the show. And then, of course, probably the favorite guest of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. If you guys listen to the show regularly, you know, it's Jerry Brainham. Jerry is a writer. He used to write for Muscle and Fitness Magazine, and then he went to work for John Balick at Ironman Magazine. But before that, Jerry was a bodybuilder himself. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and then he moved to California in the 60s, and he became friends with Arnold and Frank Zane and many of the top bodybuilders at that time. He trained at all the top gyms. Jerry's got a wealth of stories. And this one, this was from an interview me and Jerry did in 2018, where Jerry talks about Lee Haney versus Arnold and several other subjects. And another one of my favorite interviews since we started the podcast was Roger Schwab. And Roger used to be a judge for the IFBB. He was actually the head judge for the IFBB back in the early 1980s. And so Roger's got a wealth of information and some great stories. We talk a little bit about women's bodybuilding and how the drugs in bodybuilding have changed the sports in this clip that we're going to go through in a minute. One of my most popular guests over the years was John Little. John was also a writer. He used to write for Muscle and Fitness as well. And he's a big proponent of Mike Menser. He became friends with Mike Menser, and he's written several books on Mike Menser that are available on Amazon. And he also is a big Bruce Lee fan. In fact, John was a producer 
of a Bruce Lee documentary that was on several years ago. So I did an interview with John about Mike Menser. I believe it was the anniversary of Mike's death. And we got into a discussion about Bruce Lee. So I asked him some stuff about Bruce Lee. So that considering this is Bruce Lee's 50th anniversary since he died, he died in 1973. I thought it would be great to show this clip about Bruce Lee that we talked to with John Little. And then finally, we're going to talk to uh, Jack Neary. Jack was, again, one of my favorite writers. Him and Rick Wayne, I think, were the best writers in bodybuilding. And Jack wrote for the Weeder magazines in the late 70s. And one of his most famous articles he ever wrote was the contest report of the 1980 Mr. Olympia. And Jack was there, and he got to experience it all. And so we talked to Jack about his thoughts of the 1980 Mr. Olympia. So that's going to be really interesting, too. All right, so what else is going on? They just had the Texas Pro this last weekend. It was probably one of the biggest pro shows of the year. Most of the pro shows this year have been really disappointing. Only the Arnold Classic was very competitive so far this year. All the other ones have been really very low attended, maybe like seven or eight bodybuilders, and usually just one guy was the winner. But this was very exciting because you had Hunter Labrada competing in the Texas Pro, and Hunter just won the Tampa Pro a couple weeks ago out here in Tampa in his best shape ever, and he was going up against Andrew Jacked. That's not Andrew's real name, but that's what they call him, Andrew Jacked. And Andrew is a phenomenal bodybuilder. He's one of my favorites right now on the pro scene. He's about six foot three, extremely wide, very small waist, incredible, incredible physique. And he's just slowly, he's only been in the sport, I think, around four or five years, and his genetics are just insane. And he's slowly filling out, and he's slowly adding size. And he made significant progress from the Arnold Classic, which was just a few months ago. I mean, you could really see the difference in his back development and everything. So he came in fantastic shape. And Andrew won the contest over Hunter to, like, a really, really good show. So that was a very exciting show to see the pictures of and watch the video of this weekend. So I hope Andrew does really well at the Olympia. This guy's got the kind of look that I think we all here at the podcast admire because it's that classic aesthetic type of look, almost like a work of art, obviously much bigger than physiques like Serge Debray and people like that. But Andrew has that type of look because he does have the small waistline, the incredible structure, the very, very wide shoulders and that height. And he's got unbelievable abs, which I love because a lot of these bodybuilders, especially with I think all the drugs are taking and the way they push themselves to gain so much size and they get so damn big, they lose their abs. And I think a lot of bodybuilders don't train their abs, just like they don't train their calves. So they don't have those deep, sharp abs like Muhammad McAway used to have or some of the other great bodybuilders from the 70s and 80s. But Andrew does. He has these deep, deep abs just standing there before he even hits an ab shot. So I really love his look, and I really hope he does well at the Olympia, which is 11 weeks. In 11 weeks, Mr. Olympia will be taking place out here in Florida, at Orlando, Florida. And so that's going to be a very, very exciting contest. Definitely the biggest show of the year. Uh, I'm still working hard on my bodybuilding history book. I don't know when this is going to be done. I started, I mean, I have, I'm going to recover the whole history of the sport. I don't know how far I'm going to go. Probably only till maybe 1980, maybe 1990. It's just taking so long because I started writing it, covering the contest in 1960. So every I'm going through every year, and I'm covering all the major competitions from that year, the Mr. America, the Mr. Universe, the Mr. Olympia, when that developed. And so 
if you look back at my writing, it's 1960, 1961, 1962, took about three pages to cover all those. Now I'm up to 1977, and now it's taking 25 pages to cover one year because there's so many contests and it's getting so big. So it's really amazing as I'm writing it and seeing the history of the sport evolve and how big it got and how exciting it was because there were so many different federations. There was the AAU, there was NABA. Then Dan Laurie came in and he started the WBBG. And then Serge Dubray started his own organization called WABA. And then, of course, you had the IFBB, which was getting bigger and bigger every year. And it really wasn't that big, even in the early 1970s. It took a while before the Mr. Olympia really gained prominence, probably right after Arnold retired and started promoting the contest with Jim Lormer. That's when I think it really took off. And, of course, they did a fantastic job with the contest, promoting it with just really great stage production and marketing it very well. And that's when all the bodybuilders started to go from the NABA over to the IFBB. And that's when I think the NABA started to lose prominence. And then, of course, you had the split between the AAU and the IFBB, which was in 1982, and that's when they started the MPC. So that's when the AAU really started to lose steam, and the AAU Mr. America was no longer the biggest amateur show in the country, which it was for so many decades. So I just finished writing about the 1977 Mr. America contest, which was promoted by Ken Sprague from Gold's Gym. And what an event that was. Oh, my God. They had this big parade on the day of the contest that started at 11 a.m. and went down Ocean Avenue, which was right by the right by the water in Santa Monica. And they had over 100,000 people watching this parade. Which it had floats. It had elephants. Bodybuilders like Ken Waller and Dave Dupree and Bill Grant were on these floats. Ken Waller was riding an elephant. It was amazing. So it went all the way up to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, I believe, and that's where the contest was. And the contest started two hours later at like 1 p.m., and that went for like four hours. They took four hours to prejudge this contest, which was about 38 competitors, three divisions, Great contest, of course. You had Dave Johns winning the contest. He had a spectacular physique. When I look back at the pictures of Dave, I'm like, wow, he really did have an amazing physique. Very proportionate, very thick, good legs. He had everything. And then Manuel Perry, who was another amazing bodybuilder, he won the tall class. And Manuel's kind of a new guy on the scene. He had only been competing a couple of years. So he just moved to California. He was a Gold's Gym regular. Great physique, small waist, big arms. And then Ron Tufel, at only 20 years old, was the winner of the short class. And Ron was unbelievable for such a young age. He won the Teenage America at 18, and he looked like a man. He looked like he could beat men in the open division. And here he was at the Mr. America winning his class at only 20 years old. And Tom Platts was second to Ron. And Tom was a shadow of what he would become later on. In fact, by the next year, by 1978, Tom made amazing progress. But in this show, he was very thin, very drawn out. And I remember reading the magazines back then, and I remember Tom saying that he did a lot of running to get ready for that contest. And I think he was using a low-carb diet, and it just totally ate up the muscle tissue, especially on his upper body. Now, his legs, of course, were spectacular, and Tom did win the Best Legs Award at that contest. But, yeah, what a great trip down memory lane it was, reading about that contest and writing about it. So I will keep working on this book, guys, and I'll let you know. I don't know when it's going to be out. I don't know how far I'm going to go with it, but it will be an exciting book when it does come out. A lot of history. 
thinking of history, I just ordered some old muscle builder magazines. I saw a bunch of them being sold on eBay. So these were from, I think they started in 1966 through 1971. So they had some great old ones. I had a couple of them, but these were before Arnold came around when Larry Scott just won his first Mr. Olympia. And then I got some other ones that where Sergio just won his first Mr. Olympia. So it was great seeing that old stuff. Some of those great bodybuilders from that era, Freddie Ortiz, Dave Draper, Sergio, of course, Larry Scott, Harold Poole, Rock Stonewall, some awesome bodybuilders. Also saw a couple of pictures of Gabe Boudreau, who we just interviewed on our show a couple months ago. And Gabe won, I think it was the Mr. Western America, and he had some pictures in there with Joe Weider. He looked fantastic. So, yeah, it was great stuff. All right. Well, that's all I got for opening. We didn't get any emails this week. So if you guys have any thoughts about the show or thoughts about this show or comments or questions, you can send them to naturalolympia at gmail.com and I'll read your email on the air. All right. So to start off our sixth anniversary, part two of our sixth anniversary, here's a clip of an interview I did with Rich Gaspari last year in 2022. This was right after the MPC Nationals, which also took place in Orlando, Florida. And Rich was there watching the show, and I went to watch the show, too. So it brought up the topic of how turning pro today is so much different than it was in the 1980s. So Rich talks about that on this clip right here. Yeah, you mentioned the Nationals. You were out there last weekend, and I was out there, too. And I was thinking that was the 40th anniversary because it started in 1982 when Lee Haney won in New York. Yes, and this was twenty. And I saw that show as a teenager. I went. To oh, that you did? Show. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah. I was in New York to watch Lee Haney win that show. Oh, wow! Like, Who's this guy? You know, he, he just had that tiny waist and wide yeah. clavicle. Yeah. I didn't even know him. That, you know, it's funny. I didn't know who he was then. I didn't either. Yeah, I remember reading the magazine. I had no idea who he was. Yeah, you know, he won. He won that, and then, as you know, he went to win the universe, and that's you know, he turned pro to get third place on his first try in the Olympia. Yeah. And that's when I, you know, a year later, I moved to California, become friends with Lee Haney and, and you know, history yeah. is what it was. Being yeah. together as, you know, still close friends to this what, day. What did you think of that show, Rich, when you saw it as a teenager? I didn't know you went and saw it, uh, but it makes sense because you were in New Jersey and I was in New York. Right? I was in Jersey. I was competing in teenage shows and I heard about the Nationals because before, you know, at, before 82 or 81 is when NPC came about in 80, yeah. 81. I competed at 15, 16. I competed in AAU. Yeah. It was no NPC. I think in 80, in 82, 81. And then in 82, I started competing in NPC. Yeah. Cause I think, I guess Jim Mann, you got like John Kemper to represent that area of New Jersey. Okay. I, going, I went there. I just, I never stopped, you know, going into the NPC, but my first, Years competing was AAU because there wasn't yeah. a piece, believe yeah. it or not. And um, yeah. when I went to see that show, they had it in Madison Square Garden. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing because they had it in Madison Square Garden. It was like, to me, it was a big deal to see that show. The guy who guest posts, you know, you're, you're good at remembering the guy's names. He, he, he was the guy who had intensity or insanity, the training. Oh, Steve Mihalik. Steve Mihalik. Steve yeah. Mihalik was the guest poser. Oh, okay. And he, and he looked phenomenal at that show. He's got, I was like, wow, Steve Malik, you know, posed yeah. at that show. Looked great. I just remember, you know, Lee Haney winning that show. He really stood out, you know, in that show as you could see mm-hmm. this guy was going to be a, 
a great bodybuilder. You know, yeah, the, quali- the quality of that contest was amazing. You look at all the classes, man. It was like the top 10 were really fantastic, yeah. you know. Well, back then, as you know, like in, in all the shows, like in, in some where I competed in 84, there were guys like, you know, Lee Labrada that was competing that didn't, you know, my year didn't win, but he was yeah. in that show. That's there true. were other guys in that show that, you know, turned into pros like Tom Terwilliger yeah. in my class. I don't know if you remember the guy who came second two years in a row or actually won that class. And then when me came second, then he, he retired was Moses, um, Moses Maldonado. Yeah. And, you know, seeing Moses Maldonado, I guess back then, if you guys, I don't know if your listeners know, there was only one way to turn pro and that's win the Mr. Universe or world championships. There were yeah. five pros in the entire world, five <laughs> pros. It was over four the whole pros. year. <laughs> and in the whole year, five pros. Yeah. yeah. So when you won that when you won that title, first of all, you won the nationals and then you went to the world championships, which when I competed was in Las Vegas. There was I don't even remember. I think there was over a hundred contestants just in the you know, oh, yeah. right hand class that I competed sure. in. Yeah. You had everyone from all over India, Canada, Mexico, you had all these guys, Germany, Italy. Yeah. yeah. And it was really cool because it really meant something to win the world championships. When you yeah. won the world championships, and I remember because I won the world championships, and then I got my first guest posing. And believe it or not, it was all the way in Tahiti. That was my first guest. Oh posing. wow, that's cool. So to get to Tahiti, first of all, I was like, I was 21 years old. I'm like, damn, I'm going to go to Tahiti. <laughs> um, I went to Tahiti to get to Tahiti. They had like a stopover in New Zealand. And when I stopped over in New Zealand, I was getting out of playing for the changeover. And then someone came up to me, Rich Gasparri. I'm like, holy crap, this guy knows who I am. Recognizes me. And that's because it meant so much to turn pro at that time. Yeah. Today, you and I talked about it the other day. I think in the Nationals alone, they let every first and second place in each class turn pro. And there were seven classes. So there was 14 pros just in the bodybuilding. Yeah. And you told me there was eight classes in physique. There were 16 pros in the, in the physique. Right. <laughs> and you, and then you had, I think it was five or six classes in classic. So yeah. You had another 10 to 12 pros. Right. So just the men's division, you had over 40 something pros just in that show. I know. You're supposed to know who these guys are. Right. You no idea that. So they've diluted the whole value. I'm not saying anything's wrong with it. I mean, I mean, what today has done is, there's a lot more pros. And then you got guys going in the Olympian. I don't know if you know this. There is actually Dan Solomon told me there was 600, but then Bob Chicarello was telling me there's like 480, 480 yeah, I heard in the Olympian. Yeah. yeah. In the Olympian. Yeah. And, and they're, they're worried about how long it's going to take. Yeah. So there's guys qualifying it. I'm not going to say anything wrong with it, but I mean, there's pro shows everywhere. So you got a pro show, you know, in places, you know, Indiana pro actually, that was kind of a, a show that people recognize, but there was just yeah. a show in Fort Lauderdale. But they're all over the world. Yeah. They're all over the place. And, and you got pro shows all over. I was just in Japan. They were, they were given four invitations to the Olympia. So each class winner got to go to the Olympia in India. So the, um, the 212 got invited, who won that, who won the pro. Mm-hmm. The bodybuilding got invited. The bikini. And the figure. So they had yeah. four pros just in India. 
And then yeah. you had Japan that had another five or six that were able to go to the Olympia. Yeah. In the meantime, you also had all pros because they had the amateur Olympia with all these pros. So, right. It was a lot more prestigious. I mean, the whole thing is, is as we talk, the cream rises to the top. So when you get to the Olympia, there's only those few guys yeah. that stand out. Yeah. I mean, Adi Chopin was one of the few guys that really nobody, I mean, I guess you heard about him. He came from like Iran and then he goes into the Olympia's first strike. It's third place. Yeah. It's like yeah. that hadn't happened. John, how many years did that happen? It hasn't happened. It's always no, a seat that yeah. has to build up to, to get to that place. Yeah. But you asked me about the nationals, you know, I want to disparage athletes and think, you know, it's great to see them compete, but I think you and I were discussing the only class that really was a, a good class were the heavyweight class. Yeah. You could say they look like decent guys to turn pro that could have right. potential, you know, as a professional. The other guys, they felt like, I felt like they were at state level at best. Yeah, me too. Going back yeah. say, 20 years ago. Right. So, or, or 40 so years ago. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I'm not sure where bodybuilding sometimes, I mean, you got to look at the guys that are up there in the top, Big Rami, you know, Nick Walker. Yeah. You know, they're great bodybuilders and they're big, you know, they're way bigger than we were. You know, like yeah, yeah. The size of these guys. But I think there's a huge gap. And this is what the, the issue is. When I turned pro the following year, I was in the Olympic game third place. Yeah. Today, there is nobody that wins the Nationals, North America, or any pro show, and then gets to be top five in the Olympics. It's very right. rare. Right, right. I don't. I, I mean, I don't think it exists right now. you got to well, build up. Remember, Rich, how the guy who won, who turned pro at the Nationals, was usually the guy who won the Night of the Champions the next exactly. year. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they were that good. Yeah. You know, Exactly. So there were several years where it was the same guy. The guy who won the nationals, won the night of the champ, or was right up there at least, right? It was right. Yeah. When I went night yeah. of the champions, I gave second to a seasoned pro, Albert yeah. Beckles. But there were years like, you know, I guess it was Sean Ray. Remember Sean Ray and Phil Hill? Yeah. Phil Hill won. And Phil yeah. Hill won that show. Yeah. But, but I think Sean Ray won the nationals, but then Phil Hill won. Yeah. The night yeah. of the champions and Gary Stridham um, and. Gary Stratton, another yeah. pro that, what did he turn pro? He was winning USA's? Or- 86, and then he won the Night of the Champions in 87. So he went right yeah. in and won his first first pro show, you know? So like you're saying to me, and I see the same thing, once they turn pro, it seems like those amateurs that got their pro card, it, it takes two to three years yeah. for them to catch up to the current pros yeah. that are competing. Yeah, You know, it, it, like guys like Labrada took them time. You know, guys like, you know, uh, Sergio Oliva Jr. You yeah. Know, still trying to get, you know, claw their way up from. Yeah. He's been at it for several years now. He's been at it several years. So, and he's been, you know, he's been improving. Yeah. But it's tough. So. Yeah. I just think there's a huge gap between the getting your pro card and then getting as one of the, being one of the top bodybuilders. Yeah. Well, don't you think too, Rich, that it's because they give like two pro cards each class? Because like, let's say you got three good guys in the class. Two of them are going to get a pro card. So only one of them's coming back the next year. Or or we had like five good guys in the class. One would get a pro card and the other four would have to come back the next year. Plus you'd have those. And and they would have to fight. They would have to fight for that to win that show. Yeah. That second place is usually was the guy to win. But maybe the third and fourth guy maybe improved, and maybe that guy came to win. Right. Then they had the guy to come back. Right. And right. it was much tougher because then the guy had to decide, the, the contestant had to decide, 
Maybe I get my pro card at the North Americas. Maybe I get my pro card at the USA's. Yeah. That came a couple years after me. But yeah. you're right. Like the pros back then, that second place guy, it was really close. And that guy you knew was going to come back. Yeah. And get that pro card the following year. So now they give the first and second place guy. Yeah. So then there's like, there's guys like yeah. yeah. Nobody left. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I remember like when Flex Wheeler turned pro, man, he looked so great when he won at USA. And they go, this guy's like a pro right now. He's going to, he's going to win a pro show. And he did. He won Remember, it, it took him years to get that USA. Yeah. It took two, three years because he yeah. kept trying. And he was second to Lavroni. He was second to Matarazzo. You know, he kept getting second. And then finally, when he did get his pro card, wow, yeah. this is a great pro. He's going to be a great pro. Because he kept improving every year, you know, every year when he yeah. was trying, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny. Like you said, it's been, uh, it, it's, it's very diluted, you know. And I see, you know, it's become a business. Yeah. But what they're doing is, you know, with NPC, you have, you know, your your fees to to be an athlete. Mm-hmm. So that's how they survive, you know, the organization, the NPC organization. But now you have the pro cards that are more. I don't know what a pro card costs. What is it? Like three hundred bucks? You know what I it think is? So I think it's like three hundred a year. Yeah. Yeah. So now you have to pay three hundred a year. <laughs> and now you had you had forty. Something pros just in the nationals they are all going to pay for the pro cards. So right. It's all going to come in, you know. Yeah. So it's it is a business. Um, but as I said, the 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 cream will rise to the top, and who's going to be the top Olympia competitors? But yeah. even the Olympia has been diluted because there's almost five hundred, five hundred or six hundred competitors That's going crazy. to the Olympia. <laughs> but I went to the Olympia. There was, you know, the most I think there was ever was thirty when I was in the Olympia. Thirty yeah. contestants it was a lot. Yeah. I was talking to John Romano about, you know, the Olympia. He goes, what was the only way to qualify for the Mr. Olympia? And then it was like, you had to win Mr. Universe. Yeah. It was all former, it was all former Mr. Universes. Right. Right. There was no qualification with a pro show to get into Mr. Olympia. You won Mr. Universe. You qualified for Mr. Olympia. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense because the universe was the top amateur in the world. Like you said, you were beating guys from Australia, China, you know, yeah. everywhere, England. So you beat all the top amateurs in the world. So you've gone as far as you can go as an amateur at that point, right? If you won that contest. So it makes sense that you can turn pro then, you know? And I think that's what Joe Weider did with the Olympia because once you won Mr. Universe, there was nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go, right? That's why he And then, so then he came up with that concept of the Mr. Olympia to get past and present universe winners to go against each other. Yeah. So, you know, John, you know, John was saying, now, to be a Mr. Olympia competitor, what did you have to be? I, and I was thinking about it. I said, I guess just winning Mr. Universe. Yeah. And every single one of those guys that were on stage, because if you think about it, Robbie Robinson oh. won Mr. Universe. Yeah. Danny Padilla won Mr. Universe. Mike, yeah. Mike Metz yeah. won Mr. Universe. Right. right. All right. For our second clip, I'm going to talk to Rick Wayne. And Rick Wayne, as I said, was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done since I started the podcast. And I did this also last fall and around October. We did a three-part interview. So in this clip I'm going to share with you guys here, this is part two of our interview with Rick. And he starts off talking about Arnold and Franco and how they used to try to psych out the competitors backstage. And then we get into a discussion about Joe Weider and an article that Rick was writing about Arnold, about Conan the Barbarian, when before it was coming out. So this is really interesting stuff. Here we go. 
Arnold was in this business of psyching people out. Yeah. And he and, he, and, uh, he and Franco would combine. Sometimes they would even bring me in on it to psych, uh-huh. people, psych people out, you know. So Sergio, when he's through now, so he takes off the, 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 the over, overalls and he stretches. And Arnold's head went straight to Franco. <laughs> And when, and when Sergio had left the room, Sergio's, um, Franco says to Arnold, don't worry, Arnold. It's the lighting in here. And Arnold's response was, fuck the lighting. He said, no fucking lightning can make anybody look like that. Right. <laughs> and I was, I cracked up. No fucking lighting can make anyone look like that. <laughs> but, but Franco was always doing this with other little. Right, always pumping them up. That's a, that was another fascinating relationship. Yeah. Like people, people only saw the magazine thing of it, but they don't know, um, a lot of the things that went on privately. Arnold loved Franco. Uh, Franco was umbilically tied to Arnold. Arnold <laughs> caused Joe Weider to bring him over and everything. Right. But don't ever think it was easy being Arnold's friend. I, I say that to, to my friends as well. Uh, often uh, my, my best friends are the ones who get the worst from me. <laughs> you know, because you because you talk straight to them, and you you know, it, it happens. Well, yeah. well, Arnold was something like that with Sir, with um Franco, except it went a lot further than that. Have you ever seen a picture of Arnold on his knees in a knee pose mm-hmm. with Franco standing up? No, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> And it's the opposite. It's exact opposite. Yeah. I have never heard anybody comment on that. Yeah, right, right. That's true. And that is worthy of comment. Yeah. You would, if Arnold is on his knees, he's alone. Right, right. Any knee pause, he's alone. Right, that's true. (laughs) And it was calculated. Yeah. Arnold was always, when Arnold first was photographed by Artie Zella, Mm -hmm. he said to Artie, I couldn't wait to get to Santa Monica so you could photograph me and make me look bigger than the mountains. <laughs> because because Artie would take the shots low. Yeah. And so the physique would be over the, you know, the hills. Um, yeah. Okay? Even that. That's how meticulous Arnold was. Yeah. Arnold was meticulous, always calculating. Yeah. Another, let, let me give another episode of, of him. At one point... In fact, the same time of the the Terminator thing I told you about earlier on, Uh um, I interviewed him because he'd just done Conan. And while we were talking, this beautiful little puppy, Labrador, I I guess it must have been, came into the room and said, wow, what a beautiful dog and all this. So when he got it, he told me, I think Cameron gave it to him, the, the, the producer. Yeah. Yeah. I give it to him. And um, I said, well, what's it called? He says, what else? I said, what? He says, Conan. <laughs> so we talked for a while. I left. And then I'm driving down the Santa Monica freeway. Wow, I got an idea. I pull up to the side and park. And I call him. I'm all excited. And by the way, that is what makes the writing sing. And, you know, Nicole is sitting there next to me. And she's more or less saying she hasn't seen me as excited as this. For a long time. So uh-huh. all, with all the delay, delay, I'm obviously enjoying myself, um, being, going back with you because yeah. you also know. So 
I, I'm all excited and I call him. I said, oh, I got the perfect title for for, for, for the interview. He says, what is it? So I said, Conan is a dog. He said, yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so I go home and I was due to come to the Caribbean for a, a, a vacation. Um, so about three days later, on the, on, on the evening before my flight, he calls me up. He says, Rick, you know that thing about the, the, the article? You've done it, right? You've done the article. I said, yeah. Um, he said, I think you should change the title. I said, why? He says, you have a, those kind of fans that you have, and Americans think a certain way. They're going to read that title, and, and, and they won't even read the article. Because you said, and he's so right about that, you know. I don't know how those things occurred to Arnold with no training and no coaching. They were natural. He was so, he was so perspicacious. He, 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 so sensitive to stuff like that. Yeah. And he, and he said, and he did it so many times. Of course, he stole hair in there too, like Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. So, so I said, um, why? And he says, They'll read, they'll read the title and they're going to decide what you're saying there is the movie's crap. Mm. I says, nah, he says, he says, he said, but it's a risk, right? He yeah. said, we don't have to take that risk. So I said, okay, I'll, ch I'll change the title. I left a note to um, Joe Weeder, sent a note to Joe. I called him and I said, Arnold's not happy with the title. I told him why. And the next morning I went on vacation. Normally, when I came back from vacation, I have a ton of calls and everything else. Arnold called twice, and the girl says to me, he's quite angry, uh, etc. So he called me about the second day I was back, and he said, Rick, how could you do this to me? He said, do what? He said, we talked. I said, talk about what? And he said, have you read the article? I said, no. He said, well, read the article, and he called me afterwards. So I read the article. I picked up the magazine. And it's no longer Conan is a dog. It now is Arnold is a dog. Oh. <laughs> so I'm shocked. Okay, so I said Arnold said nothing to me. I give him all the details. So the next day Arnold calls Joe Weeder. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, that told Joe that he's unhappy with what happened, what happened there. And Joe, Joe has dis dismissed me, you know. Because ah. I told you, his love affair really was with Ferrigno. Mm. But Ferrigno could not deliver the goods. So yeah. it was, so Arnold filled in. And this, this is not to say he didn't, he wasn't crazy about Arnold. But he loved the, 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 the hum humility. Of Lou Ferrigno. And with the hearing, yeah. so Ferrigno is not perfect. Yeah. And, and that appealed to, and always so nice. But Arnold was always ribbing somebody, pulling yeah. them up, arrogant as shit. So, yeah. so, so while he loved Arnold, yeah. only Arnold could be like Sergio. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like Ferrigno. Like, like, like Ferrigno. Yeah. So, so, so Joe wouldn't take his call. So one day we were in the photo room, the photo library, sorting out photographs for the next issue. And the phone is right on the table that we're sharing, Joe and me. And the phone rings. I pick it up. And I said, is he there? And I handed it to Joe for you. 
Oh, Arnold, I'm so sorry, Arnold. I, uh, how can I make it up to you, Arnold? I don't know what happened, Arnold. That went on for a, a, a good five minutes, and evidently what, what can Arnold has done. So yeah. he, the phone was barely back in the crater when Joe says, that cocksucker, he says. <laughs> I, I apologize, but it's done. <laughs> Another lesson, another lesson for Rick Wayne. Yeah. When people tell you they're sorry, check it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've done what they wanted to do, and now they're, oh, I'm sorry, and they expect you to forgive them. They have to pay for that. Right. All right. Our next clip is, again, probably one of our favorite guests on the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, Jerry Brainham. And Jerry has been around forever. I love having him on the show. We have some great discussions and Jerry's got, he's a great storyteller and he's got some great experiences and a lot of knowledge. So Jerry's an awesome guest. So this was an interview did with Jerry back in 2018. And we get into, uh, in the beginning of the clip, Jerry's talking about talking to Wayne D'Amelia about how they decided to end the drug testing. They did the drug testing and bodybuilding one year in 1990. They drug tested the Arnold Classic. They drug tested the Olympia. And this was right after the Olympia and Jerry talked to Wayne about the drug testing. And then I asked Jerry who he thought was the best between Lee Haney and Arnold. And then we get into a discussion of the aesthetic look of a bodybuilder and how big can you get and still look aesthetic comparing the old school physiques to today's bodybuilder. He said, Jerry, this is off the record. So I had to turn off my tape recorder. I said, what's going on? Wayne? He says, uh, no, this is it. We're not going to drug test anymore. I said, what? I said, you make a big deal about drug testing. And right. We're all happy because now we're going to get in the Olympics and all this stuff. Right. And now you're going to get rid of it? He says, Jerry, did you see the guys? you see how off they were? I said, well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the guys didn't look as good as they usually do. He says, the bodybuilding fans come to see freaks. He says, you know, not guys that are just in shape. They want to see freaks. Right. And if... If you make it, if you drug test them, the freaky look is gone. Right. So, no more drug testing. That's <laughs> never, never, never appeared in the magazines. But right. now you know why there was only one drug test that fits for Lanky. Right, right. <laughs> so, but Lee Haney always showed, I, I tell you a funny story about Lee Haney. In 1987, at the 87 show, which was held in Gothenburg, Sweden, you remember that show? Right, yep. <laughs> I, I happened to be uh, put in a hotel away from everybody, and I said, well, let me stick me in some hotel, maybe I might <laughs> But I didn't realize there was one other person who was also in the hotel, Lee Haney. Really? <laughs> All the other body was staying at one hotel, Lee Haney was at another, and okay. I happened to be in the same hotel. So I met up with Lee Haney and his training partner, and we all went to, and we all had breakfast. This was the day before the contest in Sweden. And uh, so, you know, Lee's sitting there, and he says, he said, Jerry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, we talk. I'm gonna head to the gym, uh, and I'm gonna go in the, uh, the tanning machine. He goes, <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're not gonna train? He says, no. Nah. He says, I'm just gonna go in the tanning machine, right? <laughs> so I said, you mind if I uh, take a ride with you? Cause I'm gonna maybe get a little work at it. Sure, come on. So we go there, and I remember when we walked in this gym in Sweden, this small bodybuilding gym in Sweden, everybody, all the guys were there, all the competitors, right? <laughs> Well, you know, this is the day before the show, and the first thought I had was, why are these guys training? The right, day right. It's already they done. Gonna, are they gonna, do they think they're going to make gains or something? <laughs> right, they, you know, right. And, and, you know, Lee had no intention of training. He was, you know, heading for the tanning booth. 
And the thing I'll always remember that, that, that was funny about it, it was like a scene out of a movie. As soon as Lee Haney walked in the gym, everybody, there was total silence. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everybody stopped what they were doing and stared. Oh, Lee LeBron, everybody just stared at yeah. Lee Haney. And he says, hi, guys, how you doing? <laughs> 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 into whatever the tanning room was. Right. And then they could, then they came in straight in. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was just funny how, you know, the king walks in. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, like, yeah. already won the Mr. Olympia coming. He was the king of bodybuilding. Right. It was like they were paying deference to the king. Right, the king. right. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I wish I had a video. That would have been hilarious. Yeah. Now, you, I mean, saw, guy, you saw Arnold at his best, and you saw Haney at his best. Who do you think was better? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, but, uh... It would have been close, I, right, between those two. It would have been close because Arnold had things on Haney. You know, I believe Haney had better symmetry. In other words, he had better muscle balance. Yeah. Arnold had much, much better arms. He had a wider back. He was a bigger man, you know. Yeah. But I have to say that Arnold at his best, and I would I would say to look at him in 1974. Do you remember when he won the 74 Olympics? Sure. I think that's when he beat Lou Ferrigno. Yeah. He was at his best that year. I think it was the best year he ever had. Arnold, looking like that, I believe would have defeated Lee Haney, looking okay. like that. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, Arnold in 1980, Lee Haney would have, even the, even the 1990 Lee Haney, yeah. which was considerably off, would have defeated the 1980 Arnold. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I guess it depends also on the situation, you know, but, but, uh, that's a really tough question because they were both really great. I mean, two of the greatest ever. Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, but, uh, Arnold, uh, I, I don't know, to me, you know, if you ask me who's the single greatest Mr. Olympia, my, my first answer would be Ronnie Coleman because he was the freak of all freaks. No one ever matched his muscle size, and he, he just he dominated that show. I mean, talk about incumbents. For the years he held the title, it was only always for second place. It was kind of similar to Frail Heath for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it was a foregone conclusion when Ronnie stepped on the stage. You know, nobody came close to matching his mass. Nobody. Yeah. The only guy that came close was Flex Wheeler, you know. Oh, the most dominant. I would say it was, was Ronnie Cone because of that. But for overall greatness, you know, maybe it's because he's done so much with his life. Maybe I'm throwing that into I would still have to say Arnold, uh, yeah. the one in my book, you know. But, but Ronnie, uh, if, if you talk about pure bodybuilding, it's Ronnie Coleman. Yeah. But for overall greatness, probably Arnold. You know, but but I, the I standards have changed, too, so much, right, Jerry? I mean, back then, symmetry was considered important, aesthetics. I mean, when I look at pictures of Arnold, like there's a picture of him when he won the 1973 Mr. Olympia, and he's standing on stage with Joe Weider and his girlfriend at the time, Barbara Outland, and right. he's just standing there, and he looks so perfect. You know, his, right. his thighs, his right. arms, his chest, his waist. I mean, to me, that that picture of how he looks at that show, that's the ultimate Mr. Olympia. Like, when I think of Mr. Olympia, I think of that, you know. So, I, I mean, Ronnie was obviously much bigger, but Ronnie lost the aesthetic appeal, I think. And then, you know, you could also look at Lee Haney, who I think I agree with you. I think him and Arnold were like the the top of the line when it comes to mass and symmetry and, and aesthetic appeal. But I think when, you know, when you look, talk about the modern-day bodybuilder, 
they've lost that aesthetic appeal. That's why I always prefer to look at guys like from the seventies or eighties as the as the ultimate bodybuilders. Well, yeah, you're right. You, you have to really look at that aspect of the bodybuilding because in all those days, as you, as you correctly stated, there was an aesthetic portion of, of, of bodybuilding. In other words, you had everything in balance. Symmetry was very important. You know, right. I condition that, like I said earlier, when I judged the shows, symmetry and proportion were, to me, the two main ideals to look for in, yeah. in bodybuilding. You know, I didn't care about big arms or big calves. or big. You had to have it all in balance. That, right. to me, was a... That's, which is, that's, which is, that's good judging, too. And not too many yeah. judges judge like that anymore, unfortunately. That's right, you're right. But today, it's there is some sort of, like, the, the aesthetics are, are not quite as significant, let's say, as they were back then. Other, other, other than all in those days, I'd say the guy who responded best to the drugs of all the guys was Danny Padilla. Was yeah. Danny Padilla, who had amazing, like I said, 30-day transformation from a, a little short guy who literally did look like he didn't trade yeah. to, to a guy who was, to me, I don't know if you agree with this, one of the greatest short oh, bodies. Absolutely. absolutely. I, mean, I, I saw him in shape right in front of me, and, and uh, again, no weakness, no no weak points. The only thing wrong with Danny was that he wasn't tall. Oh, yeah. I, I, and I, I really think that uh, I have a, a category I call uncrowned Mr. Olympias. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's like several men I felt should have won, like Flex Wheeler is one of them, Leela Brad is one of them, and, and Danny Padilla is definitely on that list. I think he should have uh, won the Mr. Olympia because, you know, again, he, uh, you know, it relates to my standards of perfect symmetry, perfect aesthetics. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to look like Danny Padilla? Yeah. And he wasn't overwhelmingly big where you'd say, ah! Yeah, Two, yeah. You know, oh, my dog just jumped up on him. <laughs> <laughs> Something against you, but, <laughs> you know, he just has a great-looking physique, you know? Yeah. And that's the key. The guys years ago, I mean, you know, when they went to the beach, people, Frank Zane, even Arnold, People, people weren't freaked out uh, right. over their, over their. They, they were just. I mean, they were amazed because you have to understand. We're talking the sixties and seventies. Bodybuilders were as rare as as pink flamingos. You know? Yeah, yeah. You just. I mean, you know, most people had no physiques, literally. You know. Yeah. So when they see a guy like Arnold walk down the beach, it was almost like this. I mean, the looks on their face. It was almost as if a UFO had landed right there in the sand. And right. They, 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 what the hell is this? You know, I mean, you know. But you're saying is, because they were so aesthetically pleasing, they weren't, yeah, people yeah, were freaked out about them, you know. I yes, mean, they were freaked out, but not grossed out. Right? Exactly. And you could see the look on the face of, of both men and women when they would look Arnold, at Arnold. It wasn't like, like, ah, yeah. you know, like, like you know, they, they lived like, wow, look at this guy. How did yeah. he get like that? You know, the guys that could read their minds, they'd say, Wow, why can't I, why can't I look like that? In yeah. The movies? yeah, you know, it, it was yeah. admiration, John. It wasn't disgust. Yeah, like like people today look at uh, Phil Heath, maybe not Sean Rogue because he, you know, but some of the other guys, you know, oh, oh, yeah. oh, 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 right, right, oh, oh, you know, right. they find it repulsive. Yeah, I did an interview with John Torelli from Australia. And, yeah. and John had a really great symmetrical physique, you know, oh, very yeah. nice. You yeah, can, nice height. And then he said, toward the end of his career, but before he retired, he went into the Nava Mr. Universe. He was done with the IPV. He went over to the Nava Mr. Universe, and he got bigger than ever. You know, I, I don't know if it was from the training he was doing or the, if he was doing different drugs or whatever. And he said, as he was getting ready for the contest, he went to the beach, 
And these two young girls walked by him. He was like by a concession stand to buy some food or something. And they walked by and they looked at him and they go, ugh, gross. (laughs) Now, years ago, he would have gotten, you know, the, oh, wow, look how hot he is, you know. But now he had gotten so big that, you know, it's just like, ugh. Yeah. See, there seems to be a point at which people just don't relate to it. Yeah. In other words, it's almost like the bodybuilder is not human anymore. Yeah. He he becomes literally a monster. You know, you know, we we use that expression of bodybuilding, you know, years and for years. That's a compliment. He's a monster. (laughs) We're not comparing him to Frankenstein. We're saying that he's monstrously big. Let me tell you, uh, I think there was an old saying, uh, I think it was, uh, I think Gloria Swanson said this in that movie, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, yeah. There's a line in the movie where she says, she says, the stars had faces back then. Mm. In other words, what she was saying was that, and there's another line that was great, which she says, when somebody says to her, hey, aren't you so-and-so, you, you used to be really big in the movies, weren't you? Yeah. And she responds by saying, I'm still big.
later the publisher of Iron Man, who trained with us at the time, he could recognize an untrained woman's potential fine lines, and he did. And as I mentioned, he took Stacy out to California, and she trained at Gold's Gym with John and Arnold, all the guys in the mid to late 70s. And she, along with Lisa Lyons, Claudia Wilburn, even Rachel, were the, the pioneers for women's bodybuilding. And yeah. uh, this, these were great days because they were natural days. And Stacy just had these beautiful lines, natural lines. I don't think she ever took a bodybuilding chemical in her life. And those were just the days, you know, and I'm just fortunate that I was there at a time when bodybuilding was not pure and innocent, nothing in the way that it, that it has transpired today. Right, exactly. So tell me about that. How did you, how did you meet Stacy? Did she come in for a job at your gym? Stacy's mom was a restaurateur in Philadelphia, a pretty famous one, as a matter of fact. And Stacy had a couple of brothers who joined my gym right when we opened up. And they dragged Stacy along with them. Stacy, you know, if she was five feet one, you know, that was mm-hmm. on, tip-toe, on tiptoes probably. Mm-hmm. It was very petite. But, you know, she was like, they used to say about, maybe this is a poor analogy, but like John Grimmick used to say about Steve Reeves when he would come all the way to York to train for the 1950 Mr. Universe contest, I believe it was, in, in England. As soon as Stacy started training, her body changed almost immediately. Wow. And you could see the results happening almost on a day-to-day basis. The little bit of baby fat all of a sudden disappeared and these beautiful lines. And I would recommend any of your listeners, if, if they're paying attention to this at all, to maybe uh, Google Stacy Bentley, and you can see what women's bodybuilding looked like really in the late 1970s when it was really in the pure infancy of the sport. Mm-hmm. It was really it was really a great time. It was like all of a sudden there was women in the gym who weren't doing cardio. It was women right. in the gym who, who who were lifting weights and you know, it was a phenomenon and you know, even forty years later, it's still great to see women in the gym pumping iron and, and lifting weights and mm-hmm. realizing that probably not probably, but definitely the best way to transform their body and to get into great shape is not is not sitting on the bike. It's it's working right. out in the gym, men and women together training in exactly the same way. Right, exactly. Because we all have muscles, right? <laughs> we all have muscles. Right. Yeah, what, what's really interesting about those times, Roger, for people who weren't around back then, was how that sport just took off, and it was so, so popular, and it was covered by the national media, which I think they were probably they probably thought it was pretty unique, obviously it was, that women had muscles because that was never seen before. And if you look at Rachel and Stacy and Lisa Lyon and some of those women back then, they had great bodies, but they certainly weren't really muscular. I mean, I think most of the women today competing are way, way more muscular but it really caught on and it really took off. The national media loved it. And pretty soon these events were being covered on national television. It was really amazing, you know? It was definitely amazing. I, I would say if there was any conflict at all, and since I was I was a judge at that time in the IFBB, it was how do you, how do you judge these women? And I, 
particularly right after Rachel. I think women's bodybuilding changed in Las Vegas, and I believe the year was 82 or 83, the year that um, Bev Francis entered the Miss Olympia contest. And oh, then, they did a pumping iron too. And then all, bet, then all bets were off. Yeah, uh, because yeah. All of a sudden, Bev came in with twice as much muscle as anybody else, even Carla Dunlap, way, way more. And they didn't give it to her. She didn't win, but it it really changed the focus. And then I think the gate opened up and women started to get involved in what my opinion is maybe the, the, the darker side. That's not yeah. to say that Beth ushered it in. She was just a naturally muscular Mm-hmm. extremely muscular woman who really, you know, I thought really looked great and I got a chance to meet her and she, she's a, a lovely woman but, but because that she had this high testosterone level and she was so much more muscular than the rest of the women mm-hmm. uh, I think it just allowed women, you know, who to get involved and then to take it to the nth degree where, yeah. it is, uh, where it is you know, now or at least a few years ago when they before they ended the Miss Olympia contest, I don't know if they're starting it again. I, I think they are. I think this year they're starting and they're bringing it back. That's that'll, that'll be interesting to see what the criteria is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we could get into a whole discussion about drugs. I mean, we could just say that in a way it, it kind of did ruin the sport of bodybuilding. It created the sport of bodybuilding in a way, but then it kind of ruined it too when it just went too far. And it seems like. I don't know if it's the competitors or the judges or whatever, but they just can't seem to like, – they just keep going for it, and they keep pushing it more and more and more, and it gets to a certain point where it ruins the whole aesthetic of the sport. And that certainly was you're, the case with the with the women. Yeah, but you're exactly right, and you are so with the men also. It was mm-hmm. – when did the sport actually really change? And to me, you know, and I'm biased in this, back I'm – quite a bit older than you, but I look back looking at the pictures at NABA contests in the late 40s and early 50s, and I'm sure by that time Diana Ball was recognized, at least I think so, because Dr. Ziegler brought it over, I think, around that time. But the the physiques were still, again, you know, you could tell everybody looked different, and you you would like Mm -hmm. or dislike a certain physique, and the lines or the symmetry or the muscularity or the bulk or whatever on different bodybuilders. And that remained the same to me, and the sport was growing and great. And maybe it changed, maybe at the 1980 Olympia contest when when there was so much controversy, but there wasn't that much controversy before that. Yeah, maybe Sergio beat Arnold one year, maybe mm-hmm. Arnold beat Sergio another year, maybe there was a discrepancy in 72 in Essen, Germany, but in 80, I wasn't there. I could have been there, but I recused myself because I had trained Mike Menser previously that summer for the Olympia, but then in 81, of course, with Franco winning, and then to me, the sport changed a little bit when all of a sudden, out of the blue, you started to see striated glutes on some yeah. of the bodybuilders, notably Rich Gasperi. We never mm-hmm. saw that when we were younger. Nobody ever even thought about something like that. And to me, that's maybe, maybe when the sport 
really took a turn. And of course, between 1992 and the 1993 versions of Dorian Yates. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw an interview with Frank Zane recently, and he was saying that the only time that he could remember where the sport, and at least more recent times, I guess, where the sport did not reward just size for size's sake was from 1976 to 1983. And that was, you know, 76 was when Franco won and Zane got real close second. And then 77 through 79, Zane won, and then Arnold and Franco, and then Dickerson and Benute. So it was in those, I guess if you look at those years, those were the years when, I mean, I always look at like 1983 as a very interesting year because you had guys who were mass monsters like Bertel Fox and Lee Haney. And then you had guys like Muhammad McAway and Samir Benute and Frank Zane, and they were all in the top five. So some guy, you know, so the judges were still rewarding symmetry then, and they would pick a guy like Frank Zane over Bertel Fox, which was really interesting. And then it's it, like, that would never happen today. You know, a guy like Muhammad McAway would never beat Bertel Fox. A guy like Frank Zane would never beat Bertel Fox. But when you look at it back then, it was interesting how the judges went because they didn't have all the different divisions like they do today. They don't have classic physique and 212. And it was just, and there wasn't even, there was no weight classes. It was all one class and all different types of physiques, like you said. And then the judges had to be good enough to be able to recognize, okay, Frank Zane's got the symmetry. He's a great poser. So we're going to put him ahead of Bertel Fox. who has got way more mass, but he's lacking in certain areas. He doesn't have the symmetry. He doesn't look as good, relaxed. And also maybe because they judged all three rounds, too, you know? Exactly. I think what you're saying could be epitomized in 1980 because there's so many pictures that have come out of that contest. Mm -hmm. And you could see that Arnold was really – he wasn't the Arnold of 1974. I'm sure he would have told you that also. But he was big. I mean, he he was tall. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just saw him less than 6'1". Most of the other competitors were were five ten or less, and and when he stood next to him in the lineup, I mean he was he dwarfed them in certain ways. But if you took a yeah. look at the muscularity, he certainly wasn't as muscular as Zane or even Dennis Tenorino or Boyer or Roger Walker in that contest, mm-hmm. let alone Mike Menser and Chris Dickerson. His right. biceps were thin, his legs were not the same as nineteen seventy four. But I guess if I was a judge there, which I wasn't, how do you compare a guy who's so much bigger than to Zane? Arnold was probably 225 pounds. Yeah, that's what I was saying. 15 pounds off of his best weight. And Mm -hmm. Zane got hurt before the contest. He was sharp as a pistol, but he was probably 180 pounds. Now, how do you judge the two of them together? I mean, is it do you go for the muscularity? If you do, then Zane comes out on top. But if you come with big muscles and massive muscles, even though he was not at his best, then maybe Arnold. I, you know, that, that contest has been talked about ad infinitum, and <laughs> it, there's still no agreement about that contest. I guess there never will be. Like there won't be in 1981, although it was more obvious in 1981 that Franco probably didn't deserve to win that contest. Mm -hmm, I've written about that a million times, and so has everybody (laughs) else. Right, right. Yeah, getting back to the the, the women, though, um, talk a little bit about what was so appealing about the women, because if you go back to the days of Rachel and and Stacey Bentley, 
they definitely weren't very muscular. So why do you think the audiences really resonated with that and they really liked what the women had to offer? Way back in, 19, in the winter of 1976, as you know, a couple of bodybuilders, Arnold, Ed Corning, and Frank Zane, were invited to New York mm-hmm. to pose at the Whitney Museum uh, under the concept of bodybuilding as art. And right. I was there. I had gone with John Bellick and Arnold and Ed Corney, and none of them were in shape. I mean, none of them. <laughs> I've written many times that, that Frank Zane not only looked like he couldn't win Mr. America, didn't look like he would win Mr. Pennsylvania, and <laughs> less than a year later, he was in the most fantastic shape. They called him the chemist at the time. I didn't understand why, but he really knew how to dial it in, if you know what I mean. So anyway, the point being that the public didn't need to see these guys in contest condition. They were just, and these guys spoke very well. They mm-hmm. spoke to these people, and Arnold spoke to these people, and and they spoke well. And the even the elites in New York and the art community, they appreciated it. And then when Lisa Lyon who was really the first of the beautiful women who who was adorning Gold's Gym, got photographed by, by this Robert Mapplethorpe, who was one of the world's most renowned photographers. It was a phenomenon. It really was. She posed naked in half the pictures, and so, but it was done so tastefully. Mm-hmm. Not as Lisa Lyon, woman bodybuilder, it was so, it was so great that, that I, you know, people wanted to Looked like her. She didn't yeah. look like a muscular marvel. She just looked like a woman who was. She had separation in her thighs. You could see her abs. Or she didn't have long muscle bellies or anything like that. It wasn't like she had round muscles, but she looked great and she was stone gorgeous. And mm-hmm. I walked into Gold's gym in late 1978 and happened to meet her, and she took all the oxygen out of that gym. She looked so good, and she felt so good about herself. All right. One of my more popular interviews I've done on the podcast was with John Little, and John Little is a writer. He wrote also for Muscle and Fitness Magazine. He's also written many, many books, including books not about bodybuilding. But in this interview with John, we talked about Mike Menser. I think it was the anniversary of Mike's death, and that's why we talked about it. It was a two-part interview. And in the second part of our interview, I also asked John about Bruce Lee because John is a big Bruce Lee historian, and he also was a producer on a documentary about Bruce Lee. So John was very involved with Bruce Lee, and he wrote a lot of books about Bruce as well as Mike Metzer. So I asked John about his thoughts of Bruce Lee, and I thought this was timely because this is the 50th anniversary since Bruce Lee died back in 1973. So this was a great talk with John Little right here. Before you go, I want to ask you a little bit about Bruce Lee, because I'm a big Bruce Lee fan. I got into Bruce Lee before I got into bodybuilding. So um, You and me both. Yeah. <laughs> You've done lots of books about him. You've done videos about him. Talk a little bit about Bruce Lee. and You know what's really interesting when you look at Bruce Lee's short life? How much his physique improved so much, like when he was in Cato, and then yeah. when he got into you know the martial arts movies that he made in Hong Kong, especially Enter the Dragon, of course. But how his physique yeah. improved so much. So do you think that was a, a direct result of him being interested in bodybuilding and, and buying the magazines and 
you know, maybe doing our. Oh, yeah, he he started buying the magazines in the uh, mid to late '60s. Strength and health, muscular development. Yeah, Joe's magazines, and he he clipped out articles by you know uh, training articles, Iron Man, and he had them in a I remember a gray folder. Really, I went through it once and made a list of what all the articles were. But yeah, he was he was in with both feet and bodybuilding. He thought bodybuilding was great. You know, and wow. he. He, he, it was never his goal, nor did he have the genetics to be huge. Yeah. Um, but cause I remember, uh, he was, and another student of his were walking down in Santa Monica by the dungeon, the old gym. They called the dungeon down there. And some huge guy came out. I don't know who it was. Might have been Dave Draper. Yeah. And one on the beach, the guy, right on Santa Monica beach. Yeah. And the guy yeah. said, Whoa, who see the size of that guy, Bruce? He said, Yeah. You know, but you know, is he, is he powerful? Meaning, can you use that quickly? Yeah. So his big thing was using, getting the muscles stronger, but to use them in a practical way. I think the, the muscular development, he was proud of his physique, no question about it, but yeah. that was almost a side effect of his objective. He had tremendous lats, but he had those since he was a teenager. You know, mm. Again, genetics, uh, tiny waist. His forearms were bigger than his biceps by about one or two inches. Wow. <laughs> uh, and it, his abs were developed. It wasn't just that there was no body fat there and you could see his abs. There actually were, you talk about fiber density, he had the ridges. Yeah. Same with his pecs. He had pretty good pecs too. Yeah. Um, and then what happened when he went to Hong Kong was the humidity, sweat out all the water, all the interstitial mm. water, mm-hmm. and he, he wasn't eating as much. So he was like dieting. And then by the time Enter the Dragon rolled around, he was, I've never, it was like a skinned cat. You know? Yeah. I've never <laughs> seen that kind of definition before. Right. Um, but he never, I mean, I think it is the most he weighed when he was, you know, taking his Bob Hoffman protein powder and pumping the iron three days a week. He was about 145. Yeah. Uh, by the, by the time he made Enter the Dragon, because of the humidity and the choreography and all of this stuff, he was 120. Wow, so, 120. Yeah. Unbelievable. Five, seven and a half, 120 pounds. Jeez. But, uh, insane power. Like uh, James Coburn, I remember uh, he and I were being, we were in a room waiting to go on. They were doing a documentary on Bruce, and, and they were interviewing, you know, different people that were there. I think Van Williams from the Green Hornet was there. Yeah. And him and myself, because I'd written a book, and uh, we were talking. Or actually, we weren't. We were talking, but not about that. When yeah. he went on camera, James Coburn revealed an anecdote where he said Bruce had an 85-pound Everlast canvas punching bag hung in the backyard. Yeah. Hung it in Coburn's backyard. He said, this is for you to work out on. And he said, I'll break it in for you. <laughs> and he said, Bruce hit it with a sidekick without running, just sidekick. He said, ripped a hole in the bag that big. He said, the <laughs> stuffing came out of it, and it snapped the chain that was holding the bag. Holy the bag went out into the yard. And he studied mechanics a lot. Like he was, if you watch and analyze his movement, it's all the physics behind it. A lot of hip, you know, generating power in the stuff he did. Even this one inch punch. Yeah. It all comes from the, from the hips and the legs. Yeah. But it's, uh, he was uh, phenomenally fast. And unlike a lot of our heroes and, and movie star action heroes, he was the real deal. Yeah. In fact, if anything, he was a better fighter in real life than he was in his movies. Wow. So he was uh, he was everything you thought he was. Yeah. I've spoken to people that saw him fight for real, 
and that it saw him spar good fighters. And they all said we couldn't touch him. There was like, he was just so fast. I remember there was a fellow that worked in black belt magazines, warehouse. I want to say his name was Mark Wong. And I, we got to be friends. And one day we got to talking. I said, Oh, you worked at black belt. I said, you, Bruce Lee used to go there all the time. You must have seen him. He goes, oh, yeah, saw him a lot. I said, do you remember anything about him? He goes, yeah, a couple things. He goes, one, he said um, he was skinny. He said he looked skinny, and he was cocky. He seemed cocky to me. <laughs> he said, now, I grew up in East L.A. He said, and I was in street gangs and all that stuff, and we were, you know, we fought a lot. So, you know, the fact that he was Cato didn't impress me. And I guess when Bruce left, Mark spoke to the owner of the magazine, a guy by the name of Mito Uhara, yeah, and told him his thoughts. You know, what's this skinny guy doing back here? And uh, Mito said, "What you, you don't think he can fight?" And he said, "No." He goes, "You know, one one kick, the guy blow away basically." <laughs> you know? And and he said, "Well, what do you are you a fighter?" He goes, "Yeah, I box and I do this." He goes, oh, "Okay." So anyway, I guess. Three or four days pass, and Bruce walks back into the warehouse where this guy is. And he says, hey, I understand you're a boxer. And I goes, yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, let's box. You know, come on, let's see what you can do. And he said, he said Bruce was 15 feet away from him. He said he was in, slapped him in the head, was back out in 15 feet before the guy knew what happened. Said, okay, try, let's do that again, you know. Bruce did it again. Bang, back. And then Bruce said, well, listen, uh, you know, you, you don't seem to be much of a boxer. He said, well, he, said, he said, let's see a kick. So he had an air shield, and the guy kicked it, and Bruce said, well, that's okay. He goes, here, hold this. And air shield's like those old football ones. You right, to, right. You know? That he used the, I said, I said same thing, no run, no nothing. He said, Bruce Lee kicked me. He said, I went 25 feet back. He said, I've been hit by a car before. He said, and this hurt more than that. So it was, I mean, he was a phenom. He was a generational talent that just you don't see very often. Yeah. Super, uh, super smart, super uh, fit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for a time I owned his Marcy circuit trainer, the machine that he had imported to Hong Kong. It was like a universal machine, multi-station unit. Uh And he used to train on it. So that was that was kind of cool when I was, I used to work out on that, you know, yeah. it was Bruce's, but uh, yeah. anyway, I don't own that anymore, but it was, uh, he was, he was into that. And Walter Marcian who owned Marcy equipment had designed that. And again, the bodybuilding connection, you know, the Marcy equipment was all over uh, yeah. gyms back in the day. So yeah, Bruce was plugged into that. Wow. That's awesome. When I just watched that uh, Last Dance, the documentary about Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and, you know, I, when I was watching that, I was thinking, you know, because Michael Jordan was a really hard worker, and he really wanted to win. He had a lot of desire. But I was thinking how much of his success was due to his genetics, his natural ability to be a good basketball player, and how much was yeah. due to his hard work. And I, I always thought that about Bruce Lee, too, because I know Bruce Lee was, like, totally dedicated. I remember he had that huge library of books. And like you said, he would study all these different fighting styles. He would run the films backwards and he would study the mechanics, like you said, and things like that. And his his training was like so crazy. But you wonder like how much of his speed and stuff was genetic, his reflexes and things, you know? 
I think a lot of it, it's like most things, you know, from, from eye color to height to yeah. skin pigmentation to uh, athletic aptitude, it's all genetic. Yeah. Uh, or at least it's a huge component. Yeah. But a lot of people can have the genetic gift, but they don't know it, and they don't go into an activity that allows it to express itself. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of diminishes and atrophies, and you never hear yeah. about it. Yeah. Other people, for some reason, get attracted to a sport that they are genetically wired to be amazing at. Yeah. And when they train, they get even more amazing at it. Yeah. And I think that was Bruce Lee. I mean, his speed, I mean, there's no secret to his training methods. They've been out for a while. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen anyone duplicate his speed yet. Right. So, I mean, Bruce would have been slower if he didn't train the way he did, but he'd still be ridiculously fast. Yeah. But when that's married with resistance training, so you have a you know a stronger, more powerful strike. Right. Uh, you, it's almost unfathomable. I remember talking to a Pan Am gold medalist in judo, who was also a third or fourth dan in uh, Shotokan karate. And his name was Hayward Nishioka and uh, worked at Cal State for a while, taught there. But phenomenal judo man, like like top of the heap. And, uh, you know, most martial artists, when you talk about Bruce, they downplay his attributes because they feel they don't look as good by comparison. So if they diminish Bruce, you know, what you're left with is yeah. the real deal. So Hayward was didn't have an ego. He was awesome that way. I mean, he, he won enough championships. He didn't need to, you know, concoct a, an right. image for himself. But I said, what was it like with Bruce? He said, well, sparring with him, he goes, was ridiculous because he couldn't do anything. He said, you know, I'm a, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm high up there in judo. I'm high up there in karate. So I couldn't. He said it was like he was psychic. He said <laughs> he knew what I was going to do before I was, I did it, and he would shut me down. Mm. And he'd be in and he'd be out like he was with the guy in the warehouse. And I couldn't do anything. Yeah, he said he was so fast, and the other thing was, he said he hit me with this one-inch punch, and he said, and and I'm thinking as I'm flying backwards, fifteen feet into a wall and sliding down the wall, because I'm a Pan Am gold medal. How the hell is this happening? <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, I got so pissed off and frustrated sparring with him or trying to spar with him. I said, yeah, Bruce, I'm not doing this. Bruce, what's up? And he said. He said, I, I can't do anything. This is ridiculous. He said, what? He goes, you know, I'm, my game is judo. He said, you know, I'm on the ground. Arm bars, locks, chokes. He goes, he goes, what would you do if I just lay down on the ground, waited for you? He said, well, I, I wouldn't do anything. He said, but don't get up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it may be true that, you know, 80% of the fights end up on the ground, but it's also true 100% of them start standing up. So right, right. Bruce had a pretty good, uh, pretty good stand-up game. And yeah. uh, he actually wasn't, wasn't bad in grappling, but his big thing was to, it should be over quickly. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you don't want to drag this out because that's when things can go right. wrong. But you didn't plan for it. Right, and right. So he was lightning fast, but he also had power with the speed, which is just rare, you know. Yeah, yeah. One of his early students, Jesse Glover, told me that uh, I forget what the timing was, but they timed him, and it was like so quick. It was in hundreds and hundreds of a second for a strike, and and he'd hit a catcher's mask, and it was caved in when he hit it at that speed. Bam! So he said at that point, he said we knew that if Bruce actually punched someone, he would kill him. Hmm. He said that's you know everyone talks about his kicks. He said, but man, he said if Bruce punched you, it was it would have been lights. You would have been dead. You know, so, uh, yeah. yeah. 
Not to mention, you know, push-ups on thumbs only. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Phenomenal. One finger of one arm. Was, yeah. <laughs> guy's body awareness was off the charts. Yeah. And even his ab exercises where he's raising his whole body up and stuff. Yeah. 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 Where he yeah, did that almost look like a bridge with his legs. Yeah. But he, yeah. Those leg raises. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was in, he was in phenomenal condition. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What a phenomenon. You, you wonder, like, you know, Menser's last show, I think it was just 29, right, when he did the 89 Olympia. So oh, his age, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you wonder if, if Menser would have kept going, how, you know, what Bruce Lee would have accomplished in the movies if he would have stayed alive. It was, I always oh, think. I know. He was only 32 when he died. I know. I know. And, I mean, he was really just kind of hitting a stride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Enter the Dragon came out after he died, right? So Yeah. And it was like, wow. And it left everybody hungry for more, but there was no yeah, more coming. There was no more. And, I know. It's funny. I, I remember, um, to tie it to Mike, uh, I was working on a documentary on Bruce Lee in around 1999-2000. I was in California. And uh, I was I called Mike. I think we were going to get together. And I told him what I was doing. He goes, oh, Bruce Lee. He goes, man, I was a huge Bruce Lee fan growing yeah. up. You know? and yeah. so we used to talk about him in high school all the time. And yeah. he asked me to write, later asked me to write an article for his website on Bruce's training, which I did. But, uh, yeah, Mike was a huge Bruce Lee guy. Loved, uh, I thought he was just you know, so cool. Yeah. But again, it spoke to things that Mike liked. Bruce was iconoclastic. Yeah. Like tradition. He was right. Mike was iconoclastic. He didn't like tradition. Right. Uh, so he, you know, what Bruce did, he did on his own. Yeah. He was, he was self-taught basically. Yeah. Um, and, and, he, and he challenged the traditions of martial arts. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I see parallels with Mike and Bruce yeah. right across the board in that respect. You know, right. They, um, you know, Arnold was the upholder of tradition and most bodybuilding was tradition, still is. Yeah. Yeah. And most martial arts are tradition-based and still are. Yeah. And Bruce was the one who said, no, 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 it's a style or a method he likened to a cage. Because if you do boxing, you can only use your hands. If you do judo or grappling, it's, it's joint locks and throws and things like that. You never see a judo man doing a high kick. Right. It's, if you're doing it, it's not judo. You know? Right. And so right. Bruce's thing was you need to be free yourself of any restrictions because you don't know how an opponent's going to come at you. Yeah. So you need to be able to use any potential weapon at your disposal, your knees, your hands, your head, your feet. And you, you can't be passive. You can't wait for someone to come in like they do in certain arts and use the opponent's forces against them. Not yeah. that that's a bad thing. That could come in handy. But if you make that, you put all your eggs in that basket, and your opponent doesn't come in in that way, what do you got? You know, yeah. So. All right, and we're going to end the show with one of my favorite interviews that I've done. This was with Jack Neary. Jack was a writer for Muscle Builder Magazine back in the late 70s, right when I got into bodybuilding, and read a lot of Jack's articles. He did a lot of profile pieces on bodybuilders, and he also did some great contest reports. And probably the most famous contest report Jack ever did was a first-hand account of the 1980 Mr. Olympia in Australia that Arnold won, probably still today the most discussed Mr. Olympia ever and one of the most controversial. And Jack was there. He was at the contest. So it was really great to get his first-hand thoughts of the contest. And then we talked a little about, about Jack's relationship with Joe Weider as well. Here we go. Um, other contests, I mean, of course, I was there for the famous and controversial 80 Olympia. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because I, I remember reading your article because, uh, you know, back then, of course, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't know anything. So I remember 
I was in the gym in 1980, and some guy comes in and he goes, "Hey, did you guys hear Arnold won the Olympia?" And we're like, "What?" And he goes, "Yeah, he blew them all away." Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I read a uh, they had a flash report in Joe's magazine, and it was just like they they hinted that there was some controversy. And then your article, I think, came out a month later, and you really spelled it out, like what really happened. So that was a great article. Yeah, it was probably, I think, the best contest report I'd done. Wow. Um, and it's funny because I wasn't living down in California at the time. I'd moved back to Canada for a time. And Joe called me out of the blue, and he said, would you like to go to Australia and cover the 80 Olympia? Wow, okay. And um, I said, yeah, okay, sure, why not, you know? And um, I remember Joe saying, you can fly first class, up in first class with me and Betty if you want. And I said, no, no, Joe, I'd rather fly in the back with the bodybuilders because I wanted to sit amongst the guys and hear what they were saying and yeah. pick their brains and because it, it was all good fodder for the, the contest report later. Yeah. Um, and so Joe couldn't believe I was turning down a first class seat to sit back with the goats and the chickens, you know, but uh, <laughs> and I tell you, it's the longest flight in the world, you know, flying from Los Angeles to Sydney yeah. uh, just forever, never ending, you know, but, uh, but you know, we survived it. Um, but there had been Rumors, there were just tiny little inklings of rumors that Arnold was maybe, you know, entertaining, making a return. He'd been training for Conan. Uh, he was in pretty good shape and he was thinking about maybe coming back and maybe shutting up guys like Mike Menser and people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so these were just rumors. And um, of course, comes the day of the contest and it turns out Arnold was indeed entered. Yeah, and and there was a great deal of grumbling about this, and uh, the the big beef that all the bodybuilders had, the comp- other competitors had, was the judging panel. Most of the judges were really close friends of Arnold. Right. Um, all good guys, all let, you know, some really big names and guys I was friendly with and respected, but they were really close to Arnold. But there was Reg Park, who was Arnold's idol, of course, yeah. as a kid and a dear friend. Mitz Kawashima, who was a, a gym owner from Honolulu, very close to Arnold. Albert Busek, a lifelong friend of Arnold, a really lovely guy who I really right. like. Um, there was an Australian guy who no one knew named Brendan Ryan, who was a good friend of Paul Graham, who was a good friend of um, Arnold. Paul Graham was the promoter of the contest, and he got his friend Brendan on. And he wasn't really qualified to uh, IFB, IFBB international standards. Right. Um, but, you know, a bunch, and there might be a couple other guys I'm missing, but there was a bunch of guys that were really close to Arnold. So there was a lot of feeling, hey, is this like kind of a stacked deck? Yeah. Um, and then there was this big controversy on the morning of the uh, just before the prejudging um, where um, there were these two weight classes was the under 200 and the over 200. Um, and and I think there was the feeling amongst the, uh, the, the, the bulk of the bodybuilders, you know, Mike Menser, Boyer, Coe, Dickerson, Roger Walker, Frank Zane, etc. all the guys. Um, why do we even need the weight classes? Why can't we just have one class? Right. Um, because there really were very few in the over 200 anyway, a few guys, but not as many, yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as you pointed out earlier. And um, Arnold was adamant that there were two classes. He, he was just being really uh, stubborn about it and was refusing to bend. And there was this big meeting called in the dressing room area um, uh, in the Sydney Opera House, this amazing facility. And there were all these guys sitting around 
their track suits, you know, and before the prejudging and Arnold's making this impassioned speech for why it should be two classes. And Mike Menser was sort of the vocal advocate for the other side and was advocating one class. And there was, you know, Ben Weeder was there and Oscar State and all the different officials and judges and, and all the judges were witnessing this. Right. And then Arnold just took the most un- unbelievable shot at Mike. He said, oh, Mike, we all know you lost last year's Olympia because you're a big gut hanging out. Um, and, and I thought Mike was going to walk over and pound him. Like, really? I, I, I said, I've never you, you became so close to physical violence. Yeah. Um, and it's a real ripple of concern swept through the room. And, um, and, you know, other guys stepped in, like Boyer stepped up and said, okay, let's calm down. Let's calm down. And, yeah. you know, finally cooler heads prevailed and order was kind of restored and Arnold could sense he was on the losing end of this. And so he kind of acquiesced and said, okay, I, I, I withdraw my challenge and, you know, we can go with one class and that's fine. Yeah. Um, so peace was restored and then the prejudging began. And this is the first time I'd ever seen Arnold, uh, right. you know, beat. Uh, in, yeah. I'd seen him guest pose a couple of times and he, you know, wasn't in great shape in those middle years, but, uh, um, and I have to say, I was pretty impressed. I mean, Arnold, even though Arnold was nowhere near his best condition based on stories I witnessed reports of people who knew him back in the day, right. um, he was still pretty impressive, you know, but he didn't have the size and he looked kind of drawn out. Um, and you had a lot of other guys who came in an unbelievable shape. Like Mike Menser was in rock hard. Re- he really timed it well that year. Mm-hmm. Chris Dickerson was phenomenal. I actually thought Chris was the best guy on stage. Yeah. Um, you know, Frank Zane uh, was in pretty good shape, but he had had a setback, a freak accident, right. uh, sun tanning in Palm Springs that set him back for a time. So he wasn't quite in his best form. But um, uh, Boyer Cole was in incredible shape, and he yeah. really looked good. And uh, I'm going to miss a bunch of guys. Roger Walker from uh, Australia was in great shape, or England. Right. 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 Uh, he was really strong. Um, and there was guys like Samir Banu who, who mistimed things and they weren't quite the, the names that they became. Ken Waller wasn't in his best, you know, but there was a bunch of guys that were really great. Yeah. Um, and Arnold, you know, so Arnold really clearly from the prejudging had his work cut out for him. Um, but, what, what were your feelings, Jack, when you saw, after you watched the prejudging, did you think Arnold was going to win or did you think someone else was going to win? No, I, well, I, you know, if I were picking it, and I know it's very subjective, sure. um, yeah. but I would have picked Chris Dickerson as the best guy. Okay. Even though I was a big Mike Menser fan, um, and Mike was great. I mean, you could argue he was the next best guy, or some would have him number one, but he was certainly top three. Yeah. And the judges voted, and of course, he was the nemesis of Arnold. And, uh, you know, it's no question in my mind that the Arnold's friends who were on the judging panel marked Mike down to the fifth. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, I think the whole crowd felt that. But, um, you know, it's not, of course, nothing you can prove. It's just a, sure. yeah. an allegation, but and that's all it is. But um, um, Where would you have had Arnold, Jack? I, you know, I, I could have had him second, maybe third. Okay. Um, you know, I, he, he was still pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, and I write some of that off as it was the first time I'd ever seen him and the legend, you know. Was, yeah, uh, which I'm sure affected a lot of people, some of the judges maybe too, yeah. Yeah, but there were a lot of guys who knew him from the day, you know, the 74 era. Yeah. And they said, oh, he's, he's nothing like that. And, right. Uh, right. and kind of dismissed him. But, you know, I was pretty impressed by Arnold on the day, but I didn't think he was the best guy. Did you think um, his legs were really weak? 
Yeah, his legs weren't that great. His back wasn't that good. He was kind of drawn out. He would he would actually refuse to do certain mandatory poses. Mm-hmm. You know, the, like the the judges would call for a certain like a side back triceps or whatever, and he yeah, wouldn't do it. He yeah. wouldn't do it. Right. He just wouldn't do it. And right. and you know, normally you'd be penalized for that. Yeah. But uh, not not this time. And uh, you know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Just had a little bit of an air of things weren't quite on the level. Mm-hmm. Was my feeling. You know. But again, you couldn't be certain and you couldn't prove it. Um, but I'll tell you, did you know John Little? Yes, I interviewed him. Well, yeah. John Little, who lives here in Toronto, is, uh, knew Mike Mensah really well. He's actually putting together an amazing documentary film about that contest right. with all kinds of good stuff. It's, I hope he gets it out in the next year or so. Yeah. Uh, it's a real eye-opener. There was a lot of stuff in there. He sent me a rough cut of it. And um, there's a lot of stuff in there that I, yeah. I won't say was thunder, but like I never even knew about, you know. Right, right. But, um, but you know it's funny. So I so I remember the night of the contest, and um, Arnold was declared the winner, and I'd never heard anything like this. But the crowd booed Arnold. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, a good half of the crowd was jeering him and booing him, and it was it came tumbling down from the upper parts of the balconies, and and you know, and this was Arnold, the the greatest bodybuilder yeah. ever, the yeah. legend. And I mean, he just sort of grinned through it all on stage, but it, it was quite of a shock. And I think we all kind of realized, man, something's not right here. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people were cheering for Mike, a lot of people for Chris Dickerson, a lot of guys for Boyer Co. I mean, there was, there were some good guys up there that day. Yeah. So I, I remember that, you know, I met, I interviewed Arnold the next day at his hotel and asked him why he came back. And uh-huh. it's all in the report, of course, and what he said. And he, he felt it was a good, time to come back and give it a shot and um but he you know he wanted arnold it was clear to me he wanted to downplay the controversy mm-hmm. um because i i went back to calgary to write the report and i got a message from arnold that he was going to be in a, a little city north of calgary called red deer he was actually going to do a seminar the following weekend on this saturday and he said i'm going to be in your neck of the woods well why don't we get together and have lunch and talk and I said, okay. So I drove up, you know, it's an hour's drive or so. And I went north to Red Deer and um, I, I sat in an Arnold seminar and um, it wound down and he saw me and he took me out for lunch. And and it was, he says, so, you know, what do you think of the contest, you know, kind of thing. And I told him, you know, I don't, I don't think he deserved to win. Hmm. And uh, that's my intention. I, I intend to report that. Um, and he, he says, and he kind of in a backhanded sort of way, he says, well, you know, this is not the time to be airing dirty laundry. And he was really trying to keep the soft soap, the whole thing. And, you know, he made me an offer that I could refuse. Um, he actually offered for me to write his encyclopedia bodybuilding along with Bill Dobbins, Hmm. who he had, who had, he had contracted to work on the book. He said, would you like to write that with Bill on the encyclopedia bodybuilding? bodybuilding and I said well thank you for the offer I appreciate it let me think about it uh so we parted and he went back to California I went back to Calgary and um I thought you know what I I'm I'm not going to accept his offer I'm not I don't want to be in any way tied or beholden to him yeah so I wrote Arnold a letter saying thanks for the offer but I did turn it down and uh and then I went on to write the story that you read and and um 
you know, I think Arnold called me a whore afterward, after the report came out. Yeah, not to my face, but I read about it in a book that came out about him or something. And, um, he, you know, then we sort of had a bit of a falling out because of that. Although we, anyway, but I bumped into him years later. I, I was in, uh, Venice and he had a restaurant there called Shotzi's. Yeah. Yeah, um, which means deer in uh, German. Like uh, his mother used to be called Schotzi. And um, I heard this booming voice from across the, the restaurant. And it was Arnold. And I said, oh. And I, so I went up and introduced myself again. And he remembered me, of course. And uh, we had a nice chat. It was very gracious, a really nice chat. And, uh, you know, this is after Mike had died. And, um, you know, Arnold was in a different phase of his life and, sure. you know, it's more the, the older statesman of the game. And, yeah. my, you know, there was no hard feelings about the report I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember, I'll never forget that report because that, uh, that kind of opened up the whole controversial part of it. You know, I don't think anybody ever knew that before, you know, the con- before we saw the, the pictures and stuff, we didn't know how controversial it was. You probably never went to a contest that controversial before, right, Jack? All the other ones you went? No, I mean, you know, there was always one or two guys that were mad that they didn't win and they would yeah. break, break their trophy backstage or whatever. But, but you know, generally most of the decisions the crowd would agree with. Yeah. Uh, but, but I'd never seen anything so resoundingly booed as that one. Um, but uh, I got to give Joe Weider credit. He didn't, uh, he didn't change any of the words in the report. He, mm-hmm. he wrote, he put it all in, you know, yeah. warts and all. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and Joe was, of course, very close to Arnold and helped create the Arnold mythology, yeah. you know, helped yeah. give him his, his great break. Um, but, you know, Joe, Joe used to drive me nuts. He would rewrite some of my articles and inject himself into the article. Um, <laughs> you know, he would always write, rechange a couple sentences and have him in there. Yeah. Um, and I, I, that used to drive me nuts, you know. And, um, but, you know, I mean, you know, he was the boss, so you kind of went along with it. But yeah. one funny story I think your listeners might like to hear, it was the day I discovered there was no Weeder Research Clinic. Um, <laughs> I, I've been reading about this this fabled place, this facility, the Weeder Research Clinic, where all of the great research went on. Um, and I, I remember one day asking Joe to take me to the clinic so I could see it. And he kind of went red in the face and kind of hemmed and hawed and said, well, there actually isn't one. Um, it's just a, a fictional thing that we, we've created that it's, it's kind of an idea, you know, as opposed to an actual place. And I thought, okay, you know, Joe was a great self-promoter yeah uh, and uh you know i don't blame him you know he, he knew how to turn out a good product he did yeah that was a great magazine that 80 olympia though it's it's funny now it's for almost over 40 years and it's still like the most talked about mr olympia ever you know every time if i'll post some pictures on facebook it's like 40 responses you know some, yep. some people thought arnold should have won some people thought he shouldn't have won but he does look uh, i guess arnold did look impressive from the magazine or from the pictures where he looked impressive enough where people thought he still could, yeah. you know. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was no pushover. He was impressive. Yeah. Uh, he just wasn't to the level that everyone knew him at. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there were guys up there. I, I'm sure you, John, with your uh, insightful eye, would have said, wow, I would have placed so-and-so or so-and-so ahead of Arnold on that mm-hmm. day. Um, you know, it's very subjective, but um, that's the name of the game. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, the fact that there were a number of really close friends of Arnold's on the panel kind of gave guys pause. But, um, 
It, 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 it is what it is. It was a, a historical event. I'm really delighted to have been there to witness it. And uh, yeah, yeah. it was the last great contest I ever saw. You know, I never really uh, followed it too closely after that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, I went to the, the uh, Columbus the next year and saw Franco win. Yes. The most controversial one I ever saw. Yeah. 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 He, um, well, Franco, of course, made a great comeback. I, I, I was there when he was at that event, the strongest man competition for TV, uh-huh. when he tore his knee out carrying oh, a you were there? Okay. Yeah, I was there. I was there going to do a little article about it. And uh, I think Lou Frigno was also in it. Yeah, he was in um, it. Yeah. yeah. And, and Franco, really strong. Like, he was really impressive, of course. But he made the mistake of trying to run with the fridge as opposed to walk really fast. Yeah. And, you know, when you run, of course, sometimes your both feet aren't on the ground. And he came down with so much weight on the one knee and it just mm-hmm. blew it out. Yeah. Um, it was pretty bad. I mean, he was really badly hobbled. And it was – it was quite something for him to come back the way he did. I, I don't know if he ever quite regained the condition that he was in in 76, but, um, you know, he, he's, you know, he was an impressive guy. It's sad that he died recently. Uh, yeah, that was very sad. Yeah. yeah, very sad. Yeah. Um, I was there too. I, I saw one of those shows. My family was on vacation that year in California and I was only yeah. 14 years old and we didn't even know they were filming that. We went to universal studios and I got a chance to see, not only Franco and Lou, but Arnold was also there uh, watching. So I got a chance oh, wow. to see Arnold, too, at 14. So that was really a great day. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to these old clips of our previous shows as much as I did. We had some great interviews over the years, and these were some of my favorites. So uh, next week, we will probably have part three of our sixth anniversary special because I've still got a lot of other ones that I wanted to put in here that I just didn't have time for. So we will probably do that next week. Again, if you guys have any emails you want to send me, just send them to naturalolympia at gmail.com. If you got any former shows that you liked and you want to hear some clips from, please let me know that as well. Until then, guys, stay safe, keep training hard, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.